My mother believed and my father believed that if I wanted to be president of the United States, I could be, I could be vice president. This is America. Former Vice President Joe Biden has been elected president of the United States. It is my greatest honor and privilege to have been your president. We will be back in some form. We are still deeply divided. Public health experts warned this was coming unless more was done. And here we are now. Are you proud of what happened here today? Absolutely. Never before in American history has there been an uprising like this. Of the 75 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump, I don't know how many today are feeling, dear God, what was I thinking? But I would wager a lot more are thinking, let's carry on this fight. Character matters. It matters. Tell them the truth matters. The 21st century is going to be the American century. Because we lead not only by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. That is the history of the journey of America. I had wondered what Kevin McCarthy was up to since losing the role of Speaker. It emerged this week that he's just roaming the halls, pushing his opponents into lockers, dropping sneaky digs into their backs. Marion McKeown of the Sunday Business Post is back for our new bi-monthly roundup of what's really happening. In America. Marion, it's hard to believe that by this time next year, we will have had the next presidential election. It'll be behind us. It felt so far away for so long. But now the, the countdown, I guess, is really on. And things things are getting testy, you'd have to say. Aside from Kevin McCarthy, everything feels a little more tense. It does. But first, Charlotte, can I say I am great to be I am great to be back I am grateful and it is great to be back I mix yeah. those two up together uh, and I now finally know what bi-monthly means because I could never tell if it was once every two months or twice a month and you finally explained it to me so I'm delighted <laughs> I've learned something oh, uh, but it, in. it is great to be back and as you say oh my god you know the, the where to start? So much has happened since we spoke last. But I think that this thing, I've written about it this week in the Business Post, basically a, a short history of GOP violence. And I, my theory is that, you know, the stuff that passes for normal now are that people even find kind of funny and you do have to laugh at some of the craziness, you know. Uh, mm. But where yeah. the former Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, who until, what, a month ago, six weeks ago, was second in line to the presidency, is walking down the corridor, you know, on Capitol Hill with all his bodyguards around him and his entourage, and he sees a fellow Republican who voted against him and sidles up and apparently, like, you know, this has been corroborated by an NPR um, reporter to the degree that she was interviewing, um, she was interviewing Tim Burgett, uh, or Birdshit, as Birdshit. he is known. Okay. Yeah, I've heard this audio. I've heard the audio. I might drop the audio in so that people can believe what what goes on. Yeah. Why'd you elbow me in the back, Kevin? Oh, no, I so hey, Kevin, you got any guts? Jerk. Well, that is audio from NPR reporter Claudia Grisales, who was interviewing Burchett when that happened. So, yeah, you walk us through it. It seems it seems like this that this is not that we don't need to corroborate this. There's actual audio evidence of it taking place. She, yeah, she is there to put, say it took place. She was there. She said she saw. She thought it was a shove, like a. But um, he claims that McCarthy went by and elbowed him in the kidneys. And then, as you say, you hear the audio where he goes, hey, Kevin, and then goes, jerk. It's like, how old are these guys? Well, they're in their 50s and 60s, in case you're wondering. Okay. 
<laughs> these aren't these are not fourteen year old schoolboys in a school corridor, you know, look, pushing each other up against the lockers. I mean, this is and you know, and then for for the sort of then McCarthy says afterwards because he was asked about it, and McCarthy has a. He has this, I've seen it before, it's almost like a nervous tick where he kind of laughs at really inappropriate moments. And then he says in this kind of quasi-brag, basically, that isn't really a denial. Oh, you know, if I had punched him in the kidneys, he'd be he'd still be on the floor or words to that effect. It's like, you know, I'm such a tough guy that if I'd really done this, he'd, you know, basically he wouldn't have recovered yet. Oh. And, and you just think, when did this become acceptable? And then you had in the Senate, um, literally, you know, in, in the same news cycle, this clown the senator from Oklahoma, Mark Wayne Mullen, who is a mixed martial arts fighter. And, you know, I've seen this in on Capitol Hill before. He never loses. He struts down the corridors and around the Dirksen building like Conor McGregor. Yeah. No, I'm not kidding. That's yeah. his, the shoulder rolling and the chin out and the, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, there's a Senate committee meeting and it's about labor and it's about the economic impact of unions and how families of, you know, low earning, relatively low earning Americans um, are making more money and doing better as a result of union membership. And there is incontrovertible evidence of that this year alone. We've seen so many unions who, where they've gone out and strike in the hotel business, in the hospitality business, UPS, the pilots, Hollywood, and of course, the, the United Auto Workers Union, where they are now getting not everything they want, but a damn sight more than they had um, from the three biggest car makers in America. Uh, so Sean O'Brien, who's head of the Teamsters, biggest union in, in, in America, in the world, I think. Um, and he's he's appearing before a committee, a, a subcommittee in Congress. And Bernie Sanders is chairing the committee in the Senate. And this clown, is, who's a ranking member, is also there. And he starts an altercation with Sean O'Brien about something O'Brien has written about him on, on on Twitter and it's like get your butt up no you get your butt up and then he stands up and again rolls the shoulders back goes to take off the wedding ring this is in the senate you know what? and bernie sanders is sitting there with a hand flapping god love poor bernie going no you know sit down you're a u.s senator so this is a time this is a place if you want to run your mouth we can be two consenting adults we can finish it here okay that's fine perfect you want to do it now i'd love to do it right now well stand your butt up then you stand your butt up Oh, hold on. Oh, hold, stop it. Is that your Sorry. solution? Every poll. No, no, sit down. Sit down. Okay. You know, you're a United States senator. Sit down. Active. Oh, my God. Okay. Somebody needs to remind right. these guys if you did that in any job and, you know, anywhere. You know, if, if, you know, in a classroom, whatever, in you, you would, like, you would be punished. And Mitch McConnell, the only person who spoke out about Mark Wayne Mullen, um, was Mitt Romney, who's leaving. You know, he's resigned from the Senate, so he can say whatever he wants at this stage. He's got nothing left to lose. But Mitch McConnell was specifically asked about this, um, on Thursday in a press gaggle. And he said, I'm not responsible for the behavior of, you know, people on Capitol Hill. You know, he is the Senate minority leader. Re Senate Republicans, he is the boss of, if you will, the Senate Republicans, um, or the Republican senators. And, and yes, it is, you know, his job 
to call them aside, I would say, if they're behaving in a way where they're threatening violence against witnesses who appear before a committee and not just threatening violence, jumping out of their seat and making as if they're going to punch them. Um, you know, I, I would say, yes, Mitch McConnell, that is your job, actually. It is your mm. job to... to um, Rein it in. To, to rein it in and to insist on some decorum and that Republican senators, you know behave themselves with a minimum standard of just decency and dignity. And, you know, we saw when when um, Robert Menendez, who, who was up for all kinds of appalling behavior, bribery and taking bribes and taking money and gold bars in his house and Mercedes he got from, you know, basically acting as a foreign agent for the Egyptians. Every one of the Democrats called him out and called for his resignation. So there should be an element of policing, because if your own colleagues won't tell you when you're out of order, who will? Well, Marion, we've seen things degenerate. There's no yeah. doubt about it since yeah. we started this podcast. What is deemed acceptable has changed. And if Mitch McConnell is your go-to Gardon Shiakana, you know, the guy who's literally on his last legs politically, physically, mentally, yeah. it doesn't bode well. So if he if he's not the watchdog, uh, is there literally no stopgap? Is there no one there to go? No. Nothing to rein it in. There's no overseeing committee uh, to to um, issue punishments or no. or it, or does it actually come back to Joe Biden? Uh, no, it's and you know Joe Biden has nothing. This he is the White House. He is the executive. By the very definition of the way America was designed, the founding fathers, the Constitution, everything, there is a separation of powers. Joe Biden can do nothing and should do nothing, by the way, about mm. how senators conduct themselves. It is none of his business and it would be an unwarranted interference. But, you know, Jarla, we can go back. I mean, you remember, I think we spoke about it on the podcast not that long ago, a couple of months back, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Bobart had a physical altercation yes. in the women's toilets. They had to be separated. You have Matt Gates now. Matt Gates is eminently punchable. I'll give him that. You know, I'd probably <laughs> punch him myself if I had a chance. But you know, he has said that he was lunged at repeatedly by by um, fellow Republicans in closed door meetings. We saw in, in, during Kevin McCarthy's excruciating and, and mercifully brief leadership in in the the fifteenth round of votes or whatever it was. We saw Mike Rogers, another fellow uh, Republican, lunging at Gates, and he had to be dragged away in a neck hold. You know, this this is all. But I I connect all of this to Donald Trump because Donald Trump is. The Republican Party leader, and he's not just the leader, he has the party in a stranglehold. And he has, from literally the first day he arrived on the political stage, he has been casually threatening violence, encouraging violence, boasting about people he knows, you know, who are not afraid to punch people or who are tough guys. When when a um, Republican in Montana, a Republican politician attacked a, a news reporter, Trump praised him on the stump and, and said, did you see that? Wasn't it great? My God, you know. Um, mm. And, you know, we have seen him and more and more now in 2016, he, I was at several rallies and we heard the things he said where he said, oh, you know, he would talk fondly about the days, reminisce about when protesters would be carried out on a stretcher, about how cops were too nice when they put suspects into the backs of cars, watching their heads instead of basically slamming them into the car um, and talking about how he would pay the legal fees 
of any of his supporters who would physically assault protesters at his rallies. So, you know, this was the start of this, you know, really where violence became a thing that wasn't just acceptable. It was something to be relished, something to boast about. And we see where Trump is now. And, you know, it's authoritarian creep where he's talking about people as being vermin, where he's threatening to put to round up millions of illegal immigrants and put them in mass internment camps and then deport them without any due process. You know, all of these things are being said on the campaign trail as a way to show what a tough guy he is. And then Ron DeSantis, who is, of course, tanking and has tanked in the polls, trying to keep up with them by talking about slitting the throats of federal workers, a metaphor, you know, to be but a, a horrible, ugly metaphor, his way of saying he was going to get rid of the deep state, saying that people who come over the border are going to end up stone cold dead, they'll be shot on sight. You know, all of this kind of cranking up this sort of Wild West, you know, sort of, you know, just that violence is the answer and that a quick, short punch or, a, you know, is, is a better solution. And, and you know, it has spread throughout the Republican Party like a virus. I can't tell you, and I, I have indeed on this show, the number of times I've been to events like the NRA, like CPAC, like the Young Republicans Gathering in Dallas, where they talk gleefully about a civil war, where they talk about it as though that is the solution, where I've had elected Republican representatives say to me, you know, there are three million of us, we're locked and loaded, we hope it doesn't come to, but if it does, we'll be ready. You know, stuff like that. So to me, none of this, it's all of a piece. Mm. I see a thread that goes, you know, down. Yeah, yeah. And 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 it's it's a really and as I of course there's a lot of jokes in the late night comics are having a field day about Fight Club on the Hill and you know the rumble in the rotunda, which I you know, and you do, as I say, you gotta laugh because somebody's so absurd, but it doesn't people need to be real too. There, you know, we saw and and we did speak back in 2020 about how both of us, the feeling of trepidation that violence was inevitable. And as it turned out, it was. It happened on, it, cum, it culminated on January 6th in, in the attack on the Capitol, uh, in, in which, you know, several people lost their lives and in which hundreds more were injured, mainly 140 police officers in, amongst them. Uh, and, you know, I really feel that 2024 is going to be worse because the normalization of violence and of violent rhetoric between 2020 and 2024 to me it has it has grown exponentially it's it's a different level now where it's it's spoken about as a routine part of the discussion as i say with donald trump with his authoritarian mm. creep with the with the glorification of violence and with the normalization of violence as well and even you know i think it was was it was last month the brookings institute and um another organization that works with the public religion research institute uh, they carried out a poll which in which a third of republicans said that patriots should use violence, you know, to save their country. Mm. Now, a similar poll was carried out about four years ago, and the number who said violence was acceptable or indeed advisable, um, you know, in a political situation, it was about 13% of Republicans. Now, 13% of Democrats are also saying, yes, you know, we might have to resort to violence, you know, yeah, if, if that's what it takes. This is not going in a good direction at all. Let me ask you this, though, because we've spoken on this show again about the convictions of those involved in January 6th and the polling that showed that 
people wouldn't take up arms because of seeing the impact of engaging in uh, violent protest against the system or a, uh, in favor of Donald Trump, that there was an actual tangible impact they felt from pursuing each and every person that was involved to ward off this happening again. Has that sense dissipated? Well, you know, I think that there may be two different things here. First of all, I think the way the Department of Justice handled September 6th by methodically um, going after every Mm. single person who was guilty of violence and using all of the footage and the evidence and pursuing them and, you know, a lot of them getting prison sentences, some of them getting really long prison sentences and, you know, our home imprisonment, our, our really strict fines, our probation, everybody was punished as they should have been. Um, and, you know, the sentences seemed to be appropriate and it seemed to be, you know, a, a massive operation that was conducted in a very deliberate and organized fashion. And it was just as that was seen to be done. People could understand why these people were, why the Oath Keepers were, leaders were getting longer sentences, why other people were, you know, getting probation. It, it, it was made clear. And, you know, so I think that that's one thing where, you know, I think if Trump were to say in 24, okay, let's all march on the Capitol, I'm not sure that people would. But what is more worrying is the sort of, I I think the localized violence, violence in swing states, violence at election polls, you know, violence against election workers and violence against politicians. We saw also on Thursday that um, Paul Pelosi's attacker was convicted of uh, attempted kidnap and assault. Let's not forget that this guy who was, I think, what is he, 42, 43 uh, David Payne, he he went, he broke into Nancy Pelosi's house. He found her husband who was 82 years old and he beat him around the head with a hammer. He fractured his skull. He could very easily have killed him. And now after that happened, we heard the jokes about mm. Nancy Pelosi's husband, Donald Trump mocking him. You know, Glenn Youngkin, the alleged Mr. Nice Guy of the Republican Party mocking him. You know, around the halls of Congress, he was be- there were jokes being made about an elderly man almost being beaten to death with a hammer. You know, and, and how, and again, this goes back to the normalization of violence. So uh, do I think Donald Trump could command a crowd um, to go to the Capitol like he did in 2020 or 2021. No, because the the same situation isn't there. The same logistics aren't there. He's not in the White House. He can't call a rally on the ellipse, you know. But do I think that he could absolutely cause trouble again if he's beaten again and says the election was stolen again and calls on his supporters to rise up and protest or do whatever, to to stop the steal again. Yes, I think absolutely there could be more violence. Later on the show, we're going to hear your questions. You guys have been submitting your questions for Marion and we're going to get through as many of them as we can. And of course, round up the rest of the week, including the return of the Washington boy, George Santos. And uh, the committee published its findings in terms of the fraud that he's been engaged in with uh, campaign finances. We'll hear all about that and an awful lot more in the second half of the show. But first, I wanted to put, because we are trying to you know, catch up on what's happened the last two weeks, the Yahoo News YouGov poll found that Trump has a slight edge over Biden. Um, yeah. Now, the, these polls We've we've gone through this so many times. How do we believe them? Are they to be believed? But certainly, Marion, what's emerging in all of the polls that I read 
is really, really interesting. Uh, what would be the observations that you'd make s- straight away from uh, what's emerging from these polls, including the idea that people would like another Democrat to run rather than Biden? Oh, yeah. I mean, I I think um, it is a tragedy for Joe Biden that he didn't do what he really implied very strongly he would do back in 2020, where I, yeah, I remember covering his primary campaign and where he said that he would be basically a transitional president, that he would be the bridge to the next generation. And it was very strongly implied that he would serve one term, although he never said that categorically, but that he was basically the unity candidate who was going to calm the country down and then pass on the baton to somebody younger. And, you know, that 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 seemed to be um, what he was gearing towards. And I still think that had he done that, he would have been remembered as a terrific one-term president, you mm. know, who achieved an enormous amount, who was really successful. Let's No, not entirely successful because of the debacle that was Afghanistan and the way that that was handled. But in terms of Ukraine, in terms of initially with Israel, at least, that he was somebody who showed that America could still lead on the world stage that he could still unite a coalition of Western allies and, you know, that America could be a powerful force to help uphold democracy around the world. So I think had he served one term that and and as I and, you know, the midterm results were the, the best since John F. Kennedy, as we've said before yeah. on this program, whose 60th anniversary, speaking of violence, the 60th anniversary of his assassination is on, I think it's a Tuesday or Wednesday next week. Um, you know that's a, that's a, that's another um, well a bit of a red herring there, but I think that that um, Joe Biden made a mistake in running for a second term because he is quite simply too old, and I think he looks too tired. He looks like a spent force, and that does not inspire enthusiasm and it does not inspire confidence. Now I think he has been a really good one-term president, but now he's in a situation where. He almost has to run because if he were to pull out at this stage, Kamala Harris would be the candidate by default. It would be too late, I think, for an all-in primary. And people would, you know, I, I think it would make things very, very difficult. And I'm not, I think it would be a bigger mess now if he were to pull out. At this stage, his name is on the ballot in several states. You know, I'm not sure that he even could. So basically, um, the Democrats are, I think their their attitude is they're stuck with Biden. And yeah, that's how they feel. Let me jump in there because I remember this phrase. I'm not sure who said it. Uh, never underestimate how much people will underestimate Joe Biden. Yeah. We've done it every single time. Everyone's done it. We've all engaged yeah. in it. Is this well, just you, another time? Like he'll come out though, and do a, a state of the nation and you're like, wow, he really, he can do stuff. Uh, and then, you know, he fumbles some things. He says some dumb shit and you're like, Oh, he's too old. And then you look at him and go, God, he looks doddery. But again, Marion, people underestimated what his presidency could do. And, you know, as you've said time and time again, the facts and figures don't lie. He's an underestimated man. He's just the kind of guy you underestimate, is he not? I think that's absolutely true. And but I think also you have to keep in mind, I remember in the primaries, he ran, he was dreadful. I remember seeing him in New Hampshire and in really? Iowa and the various other places. And it was cringe inducing. I remember one event in, in New Hampshire in particular, and it stuck in my mind because Bernie Sanders had an event across the road. Joe Biden was in a small base basketball arena in a small local school. 
there were maybe 35 people there. At least 30 of them were over 80. And he stood up and he it was just and across the road, you could hear the cheers coming from the Bernie Sanders rally, which had thousands of people there. Now, Biden won and Sanders didn't. So, again, maybe that was an underestimation. But I think that Joe Biden is not the country is looking for inspirational leadership at the moment. Now, he was a really good technocratic president for for this past term. He achieved he got enormous gains, you know, um, legislative gains. He was he exuded decency and calmness at moments where it counted. Uh, you know, he he saved the Democrats in the midterm. He saved the Senate and he pretty well saved the House for them as well. Um, only lost a handful of seats. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, so he, he really, he has overperformed on some levels. He's also done things that have gone unsung, which I think it's no harm to mention. Uh, in terms of, you know, he really, in ter- in terms of appointments, in terms of his cabinet, he really sort of evened things out. There are so many excellent people in Joe Biden's cabinet. There are, you know, there are men, there are women, they're from minorities, there are all kinds of groups. You have Deb Haaland, who was the first interior minister who's Native American, uh, who's doing a terrific job. All of his people are doing terrific jobs. He has had the same cabinet from day one, there hasn't been a shred of drama. We haven't seen there have been no. When you think of the drama and the turnaround with Trump, with the, the chiefs of staffs, you know, every chief of staff, I mean, his Ron Klain did leave after two years, but people were crying at his leaving event, including Ron Klain. He was a really beloved and respected chief of staff. Biden has had no drama. There's been no backbiting, no leaks. He runs a really competent, unified government, which is a no small thing in Washington uh, today. Uh, So he has done a lot of things right. But as I say, the mood of the country is so exhausted. It's so disillusioned. I think that it needs, it basically needs a John F. Kennedy. Not a mm. Robert F. Kennedy. Let's not get those two confused. <laughs> well, yeah, a young, I mean, charismatic, inspiring leader. And the there's moment. no sign of and no sign no of that sign anywhere. Of that. Um, and, and where do you, you know Gavin Newsom and and Ron DeSantis are having this debate in, in Atlantic oh, City? I, uh, I can't wait to yeah, talk about I mean, that. And, uh, what's that about? Yeah, what is that about? <laughs> and cares? what boots will he wear? That's the that's the big question people are asking. I, yeah. I mean, we listen to this and you're listening to this, whoever you are out there right now, mm. tuning into Irishman in America and you're invested. You're a person who watches the news, probably has several news apps on your phone. I'm making assumptions here. But if you're listening to this and you're enjoying what Marion brings us each week, you're not the American public. The general sense that you're talking about there, the mood of America. Yeah is not people with multiple news apps, is not people who listen to political podcasts on a Friday. They interpret the biggest broad brushstroke of what's going on. Joe Biden's too old. Couldn't get simpler. Yeah. But also, Donald Trump is in big legal trouble. Like, big It doesn't, you don't need to be a a political savant to get that. Do I want to elect a man who could potentially be in jail or be stripped of all of his uh, businesses through fraud? Which of those two things, in your opinion, Marion, carries more water right now in America? 
Well, you see, America is so polarized that it literally depends on which side of the political fence you're on. Yeah. Because if if you're a Republican, um, and if you're that majority group of Republicans who is in the tank for Donald Trump, no matter what, you don't yeah. care. You don't care if he gets another really? hundred indictments <laughs> now and, and then. You, well, I and this, be amazed. But... This, well, this is based on now, as I said, going to so many events and talking to so many Republicans. There are some Republicans who have said to me, who, like, at time, we'll say 5%, I'm going to, if that, who have said, oh, you know, he's got a lot of baggage and I think Democrats are just going to keep going after him and maybe we'd be better with somebody else. Uh, but the vast majority have said to me, he won in 2020. All these Republicans who are challenging him, you know, Haley, DeSantis, they're traitors. They have no business. He should just get this nomination. He's he's hmm. owed this nomination and he is president, by the way, in case you didn't know. You know, and but that is come a out, far more common refrain. I, I hear you. I hear you. But do they come out? That's one thing. To talk to yeah. people at a rally is one thing. Voter turnout is going to be a big conversation as the year yeah. goes on. It sounds like it would be nearly better off for Joe Biden if those people just can't summon the energy to come out and vote for Trump, that they're not like, we've got to get out there again for this guy. Am I right in saying that? That a low yeah, turnout would be better know, for Charlotte, Joe? The, the thing is, it's the opposite. Joe Biden has the enthusiasm problem, not Donald Trump. Okay. Joe Biden has the Democrats and the younger Democrats and the, the Joe, Joe Biden is the big meh, you know, in in this election where they're kind of like, okay. oh, Jesus, you know, like he's so old and he's this and he's that. Donald Trump's, the MAGA bros and the MAGA um, constituency of the Republican Party, which is the the biggest chunk of it is absolutely committed to turning out for Trump. They're absolutely committed. They're much more motivated than the Biden Democrats. Now, things will change in the meantime, because at the moment, and this does happen, and, you know, Biden and his team, they overuse this expression that, you know, don't compare Biden to the almighty, compare him to the alternative. And they are right up to a point where, you know what, it's not like it's Biden or Jesus Christ, you know, or it's not yeah. like it's Biden. I don't have or to Trump be the best candidate. I just need to be better than that other candidate. Yeah. Exactly. It's Biden and Trump. And I think that maybe what will happen, assuming they're both still alive by November, whatever it is, 3rd or 8th, 2024, um, and functioning, is that people might get scared and might think, oh, God, Trump could win this thing and he could very easily win this thing. And they might come out for, for that reason because they worry about the future of America, not because they support Joe Biden necessarily or because they're excited about Biden, but because they really fear for the future of American democracy if Donald Trump is elected. And let's face it, Donald Trump, as he always does, he has told people what he's going to do. He has told people. You know, he has made it perfectly clear that he will go after his enemies, that he'll round up um, immigrants and put them in camps. He has made it perfectly clear that he will basically use his presidency to settle scores and, and to, as he puts it, to gut the deep state, to fire federal workers, to get to stockpile the whole place with, with um, you know, Trump-friendly ideologues. Uh, he has told America what he is going to do if he wins. And, you know, 
yes, a certain proportion of America wants that, as in the, the MAGA constituency, but most Americans don't. So I think that might be what might motivate them because when they do compare Biden to the alternative, as as Biden's people keep saying, that when they, when they look at it and think, well, look, this is the choice we have. We don't have a different choice. Um, and Biden is, is certainly... The lesser of the, of the two evils. So I think in, in that sense they could come out for Biden. Also, there are things like abortion that is going to be a big thing in 2024. You know where where people are going to turn out because it, this has been a big anime. It was a big animating um, policy issue in the in the midterms. It was a big animating issue last week when people turned out in Ohio in droves um, to make sure that their abortion rights weren't taken away from them. You know, um, so I think that there there are certain things that may settle in Biden's favour. Also, the economy, you know, people are not feeling that the economy is doing well at the moment. But if you look at the incremental gains of all of the people who work for unions, even the 400,000 or whatever it was, 300, uh, the, the, the UPS workers, that's a lot of families that have extra money because the unions negotiated a bloody good deal for the workers. You know, the, the union workers and Biden is undeniably, you know, a cheerleader for the unions and for unions' ability to mm -hmm. negotiate a fair wage for their workers. So they're at the moment, something like that, again, we're, we, we keep talking polls. I'm really skeptical about a lot of them. But at the moment, only around 14 or 17 percent of Americans believe that their their economic lot has improved as a result of Biden's policies. Probably in a year's time, that will be higher if some unforeseen event doesn't happen to tip the country into recession or whatever. Uh, but, but you know, that these economic, the steady economic growth will start to make people feel better. That Biden's negotiation of drug prices, if you're spending $800 a month on, on diabetes drugs at the moment and it, it drops to $32 a month, you're going to feel that. You are going to feel better off. So I wouldn't rule... Biden out. I think it's going to be a very, very close race. And unfortunately, because of the insane electoral college system, it will come down to half a dozen uh, states, mm. as usual. And, will, and, and the margins in those states will be will so be tiny. And this is where if somebody like Robert F. Kennedy can get on the ballot um, in those states, uh, he can wreak havoc. Well, if you have a question for Marion, you want to pose, you're hearing all this going, yeah, Jar, but ask her this. Well, <laughs> well I want to hear it. They're terrific. So we'll, <laughs> we'll get to them. <laughs> Irishmanabroadpodcast at gmail.com is the place to email. Marion, support for uh, ceasefire is ballooning, according to this poll. This yeah. is a humanitarian crisis now. How, when did this dawning start to take place? What do you attribute the this sense that are we enough's enough? Well, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with the appalling footage that we have seen mm. coming out of Gaza. Just the heartbreaking images, the the, the children with, you know, the, the, the you know, the, the babies in incubators. Not, yeah. That to me was one of the most, it, the effect I think that would have had on on anyone to see that, to see these tiny little helpless creatures slowly dying because they cannot be helped because there's no fuel to run these incubators. I think seeing the, the carnage around the hospitals, I think hearing medical workers, hearing representatives from Medicine Sans Frontier and the other heroic 
aid workers who described being shot at when they tried to leave the hospital, who described snipers having their sights set on the hospitals, who described not being able to help people, watching people die in agony because they have no water, they have no food, they have no fuel. Um, And I think then you see, you know, Israel on the one hand telling people to move south, go south, and then on Thursday they're dropping leaflets on, on these hundreds of thousands of displaced sick in many, many cases, injured, starving people and saying, move again. You know, after they had made the treacherous journey south, tell them to get out of the south, where are they supposed to go? And I think that there is this feeling of the devastation, something like 40% of buildings down in Gaza have been either flattened completely or damaged beyond any any use. Um, the death toll, if you know, somewhere between 11 and 12,000 um, Palestinians about between four and five thousand of those are children. This is inexcusable. But also to me, America's myopia on this and Joe Biden's myopia on this is staggering because if let's say there now we saw the atrocities that that Russia has committed in Ukraine, the bombing of maternity hospitals, the you know, the targeting of civilians, the bombing of apartments, buildings, etc. And the world rightly spoke out in outrage about these war crimes. America, by ignoring what Israel is doing, and these are war crimes, you know, and and there, you know, what, the way Israel is prosecuting this war is absolutely appalling, and it has to be said. And I think for America to basically look the other way, knowing Israel is doing this, knowing, seeing the devastation, seeing the the cost to innocent civilians, and that they have lost any moral authority. Let's say China goes into Taiwan. And something similar, you know, there are similar images. How does the US say there, these are war crimes, you're not allowed to do that? You know, when it has all but ignored what Israel has done, when Biden has refused to call for a ceasefire, and when they've made these really pretty mealy-mouthed, let's face it, utterances about humanitarian corridors and humanitarian pauses. And I think, as we said in the show before, there's this bizarre thing to me that, you know, Biden is saying on the one hand, okay, Israel... Go pound them all to rubble and we'll supply the band-aids. You know, and that seems to be, you know, and there's just no logic to that stance. So I think what clearly I think Biden now we we had a briefing with John Kirby earlier today, who is on Thursday, I beg your pardon, who is the um he's the National Security Council spokesperson. And he they, they, you know, there was all this talk about how Hamas's headquarters are under the Al Shifa Hospital, which is now, you know, has Israeli troops in, uh, storming it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And he was asked about the intelligence and what have they seen. And basically, as of yet, we have seen very little evidence that there may be stuff underneath it. There may have been personnel there, but th- th- with, it, you know, you have to at some point show and tell. Israel has to say, look. This is what we found. This is why we went in there. Here are the results. Now, Kirby was saying, well, US intelligence is definitive, but we're not going to share it. Well, that's not good enough. You know, of course, you have to protect sources. Of course, you have to protect material. But Israel has produced no evidence that I have seen yet um, that this, this bombing of hospitals was justified. The bombing 
the bombardment of a paediatric hospital, of a cancer hospital, of the biggest hospital in, in Gaza City, the Al-Shifa Hospital, we have seen no evidence to suggest that this was justified, to suggest that, as Israel claimed, that the whole Hamas, the top-tier network, the nerve centre, is under these hospitals. We just haven't. Now, you know, maybe that evidence will come, but we haven't seen it yet. And, you know, I don't know if um, Biden made a sort of a deal with the devil, with Netanyahu, where he said, okay, we're going to let you do whatever the hell you want, but there's got to be a two-state solution afterwards. You know, when you stop bombing, we have to work towards a sustainable peace. Maybe that was the deal they struck. But to my mind, this is a bad deal. This is, you cannot, the scenes that are coming out of Gaza, and Biden is losing support at home. I don't think he is going to lose a whole lot of support, to be honest, because I think America, by and large, um, has very limited interest in the Middle East, and the lim- the interest it has is very pro-Israel. Mm. So he may lose about 6% of Michigan voters, I think, are um, Muslim voters. Now, in a- Michigan is a state Biden has to win. They're not going to vote for Trump, but if they stay home, that could cost him the state. You know, so there could be a domestic political consequence for Biden in in that sense. But I I um I think that he he has been very effective. I think Anthony Blinken has been very effective up to a point in the hostage negotiations behind the scenes in stopping this from getting out of hand, in pressuring China to pressure Iran, in doing a lot of things that we really don't know very much about. But if they weren't happening, we would know by God because we'd see the consequences. But I think, as I say, the big mistake is in not really whether, in in, in not going, because Netanyahu is so politically vulnerable. It's not like he has a whole lot of leverage, uh, whereas America does have enormous leverage it can exert. And in, in not going to Netanyahu and saying, that's it, that's enough. You know, we need a ceasefire and we need it yesterday. Um, I, I think that America is making a mistake there. Let's go to the questions before we go any further, because we do have quite a few great questions to get through. Some of them we have answered. Okay, let's try this one. Okay. Maria Brady gets in touch to say, I'm thinking Sydney Powell's plea deal is moot as she is still spouting her stolen election conspiracy. Was she rewarded too early, Marion? I would have thought she might have been an effective witness if her plea deal hung in the balance. But now she's got what she wanted. Well, you know, Maria, that is such an astute observation. And I do agree with you up to a point. I think it was really important for Fanny Willis to get her um, basically to plead guilty, to get her to fold early because the, the early bird gets the worm when it comes to plea deals and the, the early mm. people always get a better deal than the later people. So by with Sydney Powell and Jenna Ellis and Ken Cheesebro all pleading guilty, now the, the, other, the other shoes haven't fallen yet, but but they will. And I think that it was an incredibly generous plea deal that she got. She got away with it, my God. But I think that she will... It, what this will do is she will have to appear as a witness if if requested. She will have to answer questions. The, we saw the leaked um, testimony from her. We saw her, you know, the, the leaked um, plea questioning session. And um, that can be used also by Jack Smith in Washington, in the case in Washington. 
And so her evidence isn't just it's it isn't just for the Georgia case. It can be used also in Washington in in the case against Donald Trump for basically, you know, the the the, the January 6th case is the short term for it, I suppose. So I think, yeah, I think the deal was possibly overly generous, but I think it was a very smart thing for Fannie Willis to do. And, um, you know, yes, you know, Sidney Powell got what she wanted, which was basically a walk. You know, a mm. slap on the wrist, what a couple of thousand dollar fine, and she had to write a letter of apology. But I think Fannie Willis also got what she wanted. So I think there is a win win there. And it may gall people a little bit that Sidney Powell, you know, got what she got and that that she escaped so lightly. But I think in the bigger picture, it was the smart thing to do. Okay, right. Well, I hope that answers your question, uh, Maria Brady. Thanks so much for submitting it. Um, yeah. Let's go to Michael Kelly now. Uh, we see the recent election results that despite the polls, people are still rejecting election denialism and anti-abortion candidates. Does this suggest that when faced with stark and binary choice between Trump and Biden, people will ultimately stick with the incumbent despite all his perceived shortcomings? This does relate back to what we talked about in the first half of the yeah. show. And kind of the point I was making that when push comes to shove, uh yeah, you know, I don't have to be better than than Christ. I have to be better than that guy, than than Trump. Yeah, and you know, I and I think that Michael does really, as you say, sum up what we've just been talking about. Look, I think what will happen here is that we know that there is a certain percentage of the electorate who wouldn't vote for Donald Trump if their lives depended on it. We know there's an equally probably large portion who wouldn't vote for Joe Biden if their lives depended on it. It's the people in the middle the moderates, the independents who are going to decide this, you know, really mm. the, the the waverers. And I think that when it a lot of the waverers, I think Michael makes a really good point here, uh, you know, these waverers, the people who might be a bit meh about Biden, a lot of them absolutely reject election denialism. And they're not going to vote for somebody, just as we saw in the midterms, like Carrie Lake, who insists that, you know, Donald Trump won the last election because everyone knows he didn't. Okay. So I think, and I think that that will play out maybe more on a level of um, the congressional election level, you know, with the Senate and with, with the House, that if you have candidates there who are running in sort of you know, it's it's only swing areas because basically the election deniers, there were 147 or 137 election deniers who voted against Joe Biden, voted not to authorize the votes even after the riot on January 6th. Most of those people were reelected. You know, that there was no penalty mm -hmm. because they were voted in by Republicans in areas that are absolutely in the tank for Donald Trump. So I think that you will have... You know, basically, again, the the absolutely committed Trump supporters are going to vote for Trump no matter what. You know, they, what, even if they oppose abortion restrictions, I think overall they will still go with Trump. Um, and I think on the other side that the, the Biden, the people who oppose Trump will vote for Biden. But that these issues uh, for people, a lot of women 
apparently, you know, in in suburbs, and this isn't just a cliche, there are a lot of suburban American women. There are women who tend to vote more moderately than their husbands, you know, who are Republicans. And I've heard this from a lot of women who say their husbands are avid Trump supporters, that they're a lot more ambivalent. And they're more ambivalent because of things like abortion um, and abortion rights, and that they some of them don't vote at all. I was I was told this by several people because they just want a quiet life. But others will quietly just go and vote for the Democratic candidate or for the non-Trump candidate. So I think, yeah, that 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 is um, certainly something worth considering. That you know they're going to say, well, look, I don't I don't want another crazy you know 2020 scenario and women and it's not just women a lot of younger men that i've spoken to feel really strongly about abortion rights as well mm-hmm. um you know and and of so course. it's it it's seen largely as a women's issue but it's not just a women's issue so i think yeah i think that that is a really important thing to consider um i need do need to put Sinead Lockman's question to you because oh, okay. pretty much everybody liked it. And it is one of those ones where you wake up in the morning and you see oh, more headlines. To the point, Sinead. <laughs> yeah. She says just one question. How is Donald Trump not in prison? <laughs> and it does, but it does like I know it's a fun question, it's a silly question and on the one hand. Well, not really. There is there is no. a there is a part of me that's like, well, what do you have to do? Like yeah. incitement to violence, sexual assault, documents that we can see in your house that shouldn't be in your house. Um, Rape, uh, all of these women that have come out against him. What does it take? How how is it taking this long? It's. I well, think it's a great question. It's, it is, you know, as you say, when you look at the litany of criminal transgressions, never mind the civil stuff, the fraud, all the other stuff, you know, it it is a really good question. I think that... Okay, Donald Trump's um, biggest vulnerabilities are absolutely Georgia. But that case, and Fannie Willis said it just the other day, may not be heard and completed until 2025, by which stage either Donald Trump will be in the White House or the big house. (laughs) You know, he could well have been already convicted and likely will have been either acquitted or convicted on the charges to do with with the the attempt to overthrow the 2020 election that case will run and i think that will run on schedule starting on march 4th and by the end of that case we you know it it may run for several months but it will i believe that there will be a conviction or an acquittal before the 2024 election and if donald trump is acquitted. Well, obviously, then he has nothing to worry about. But if he is convicted, it's very likely that there would be a custodial sentence. I've been told by any number of national security and FBI people that if he is convicted on the documents case in Miami, which talk about a smoking gun. I mean, you know, could you have any more evidence to, to, mm. to, to implicate him that he would have to get a custodial sentence because of the seriousness of the violations um, there? And obviously, with the Fannie Willis case, it's a RICO case that is a mandatory five to 20 year prison sentence. So there are three potential lots of um, custodial sentences if he is convicted and he is innocent until proven guilty. 
you know, there is a legal system and, and it should play out and it should play out without any interference of any kind. And I, I think that if it does that, there is a lot of damning evidence against Donald Trump and we'll just have to see what decision the jury makes. Because at the end of the day, it's going to be down to three juries in three different jurisdictions, two federal, one state jury, and they, they will get to decide. And of course, there's the case in New York as well. The hush money case, which I think we all regard as a bit of an afterthought because he could possibly get a custodial sentence for that. You know, Michael Cohen went to prison for, he got a three year sentence, but um, it's not necessary that he will get a custodial sentence for that. He could he could get, you know, a, a big fine or, or or something equivalent. So I think that it's entirely possible that that by this time next year, you know, the election, as he said, at this stage will have been, people will have cast their votes, that Donald Trump will either be getting ready to pardon himself or to go to prison. Wow. Or, he, wow. or as I said, the other scenario would be that he is acquitted on all every case which I think would be um, unlikely. I think it's unlikely he's that he's going to be acquitted by four different juries in four different criminal cases. Yeah, very, very unlikely. Yeah. Uh, here's another man who's looking at jail time, I think. Uh, Representative George Santos, it's been found that oh, yeah. he, I mean, we knew he was up to all sorts, but according to this committee, he sought to fraudulently exploit every aspect of his House candidacy for his own personal financial profit. Does that sum it up perfectly? Do you know, yes, but it's a bit dry. I mean, the thing about him is, is that he's such a sad specimen. You know, at the end of the day, like if you look at the the amateur hack-handed fraud, like pretending he loaned $500,000 to his campaign when he was practically bankrupt, when he didn't have, as we'd say, an arse in his trousers, you know, um, going on shopping sprees, you know, to Hermes and Ferragamo and Sephora, you know, paying for Botox out of his campaign finance funds, um, you know, paying for his subscription to OnlyFans, you know, using campaign finance. I mean, he, uh, yes, he's a con man, but he's a god-awful con man. He's a pathetic specimen. He really is. Now, I, you know, everybody has had a lot of fun with him, and I remember us having a great old laugh about the the knee the knee replacements because he was such a champion volleyball player and everything <laughs> in Harvard would run off the pitch when they saw him coming and by God and you know even though he had to get both of his knees replaced because he because he was such a fearless you know specimen on the court that it, it was worth it you know I mean all like the lies the pathetic lies the grifts were pathetic they were so badly you know executed and as I say he really. As con men go, he was pretty goddamn awful at him. You know, he really but, was. Like, here's a question for you, right? Was that, like, is this just a Netflix series that he had in his head? Like, is he actually a peculiar genius in that, yeah, he, he'll, he'll do no, some no time, but he will ultimately, at the end of this, be a, a, a celebrity, which seems to be what he wants to be. It's like how I conned them all. You know, the, you can see the autobiography there or some version of it. Like people have done worse stuff and got a career out of it. Is it possible that that's always been the plan? Or do you think it's much more haphazard that it's much more? Well, I'll see if I can get away with this. But like this is just 
it, we would say curiouser and curiouser as we went on. But I, I just started to wonder when this thing came out if there was a bigger plan or am I giving I him way too much credit? I think you're being overly kind to him. I think you're being overly generous. This is not, I, I don't know if you saw the movie Catch Me If You Can with Leonardo DiCaprio. love Capio it. One of my favourites. Mega con man who was so brilliant at being a con man. This is the opposite. <laughs> this, this is the opposite. This is a pathetic clown. And a buffoon who, and the fact that he got elected to Congress at all was nothing short of a miracle. But, you know, he, he wasn't even good at it. Like all the lies he told were so easy to track down, like saying his mother died on 9 11, you know, that when, you know, that she was a financial executive, you know, in the Twin Towers, saying that his grandmother was a Holocaust survivor, all this crazy stuff. Now, that wasn't. Okay, those lies were, you could say they were victimless lies, and as in he was making up things about his own family. It was a bit of self-aggrandizement. But the frauds and the cons and the, the stealing of money from one you know, bank account and putting it into the other, the paying himself off for loans that he never made to his campaign, the stiffing of donors, these are all, like there are 23 different felony charges being brought against him by the Department of Justice. He's going to jail. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, he said, well, he probably won't run again. Well, <laughs> you know, you know, you, you will not be running again, George Santos. That is probably pretty certain because aside from everything else, who is going to donate a penny to his campaign next time around? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. who is going to vote for him? Like that, even if the Republicans, the RNC said, OK, you know what, we'll just look the other way, like they did the last time, by the way. But this time it's interesting because Mike Johnson, the new speaker, uh, when this ethics report came out, which was really scathing, and there were several Republicans came out as well and said, we need to expel this guy today. You know, we need to just get rid of him. He, yeah. he shouldn't even be in Congress until 24. But of course, um, Mike Johnson wouldn't even criticize him because Mike Johnson, if George Santos goes, Mike Johnson has only got two votes to play with. That's his majority, two votes. And he's not going to let that happen. So they will keep George Santos purely because... They cannot, they you know, them. the margin is crazy already, but to lose, you know, basically to lose 30% of their majority, you know, they, they, I don't think that they, they're willing to take that risk. So it's easy, you know, I suppose to, to appear to be on the right side morally and to say, oh, he has to go, he has to go, when you know that the speaker has no intention of letting him go, that he will allow him to hang well, what there. What about the people that elected here. him? The people of, what was it, Nassau and Queens yep. Uh, yep. that elected this guy. I mean, they must feel so they should get their money duped. back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like they must want him out as well. They don't want him representing them. Uh, what happens yeah. there? Like for that, are they up in arms? Well, you know, I suppose they're not happy, but they voted. They cast their votes. You don't get to take your vote back. You know, a, a little more due diligence at the outset would have been warranted by, by everyone. Um, it has mm. to be said, because, as, again, these lies were so easily fact-checked. You know, his whole campaign was so bizarre. Um, and, and never mind the, the, the financial fraud and, and the other stuff that he was getting up to. You know, it, 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 it was really kind of shocking that he did manage to get elected. And then, of yeah. course, he had workers. That he, he, there was one worker he didn't pay for seven or eight months. Like, you know, but apparently as well, it did come out in, in this ethics report that Several of his team pleaded with him to get help. <laughs> Several of the people who were working for him during the wow. campaign said, you, you know, basically, you need to see a shrink. 
George. You know, like you've got problems. Um, and and but yet they stuck with him. And I think yeah. that I've seen this with a lot of people who work for candidates. I remember Kellyanne Conway in the Trump Hotel in Las Vegas. Um, on an evening when I was uh, there, in it was was it it was twenty sixteen. I think it would have been. Um, and he had be- performed dismally at a debate in Vegas against Hillary Clinton, absolutely dismally. And he'd flown home in a huff and left them all there. He wouldn't let them on the plane, so they were all getting drunk in the bar of his hotel. And I remember Kellyanne Conway speaking witheringly about Trump at that, you know, and, and several other of his most inner circle mocking him and laughing at him. But it's it's not necessarily that they are so loyal to the candidate, but they see a candidate as a stepping stone. So I think this may have been why George Santos's team didn't dump him or, you know, basically report him or whatever else they could have done because they, they were watching their own careers and they wanted to keep their own futures as yeah. political strategists or consultants or RNC officials or whatever their goal was. They wanted to keep that intact. And, you know, so there was an element of self-protection there as well and self-promotion. Uh, so I, th- I think that's, uh, you know, that has a lot to do with it a lot of times when you ask how do people get away with things that the people who could have actually drawn attention to it or blown a whistle or whatever are kind of too busy watching their own corner to to risk doing it mm-hmm. i mean that's the me too movement in 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 its essence isn't it that so many people could have blown the whistle yeah. so many people yeah. looked Absolutely. the other way and another yeah. one has just emerged overnight sean diddy combs p diddy whatever you want to call yeah. him accused of rape and severe physical abuse by his ex-girlfriend uh, Cassandra Ventura, known as Cassie. Now, what do you know about this case so far, Mar- uh, Marian? This this is very harrowing, and as you say, it has her allegations are now. She started dating Sean Combs when she was nineteen and he was thirty seven, and he was also at that stage a mega mogul already. So already you have the imbalance of power there that we we see when you've got a very powerful older man and he was at that stage in in you know in the hip hop industry um mm-hmm. who is dating a 19 year old woman who is a singer and you know is looking to make a career for herself as a singer um, and they dated for i think it was about 13 years on and off as she claims that she was stuck in a a cycle for 10 13 years of nonstop abuse, violence, sex trafficking, that she was forced to have sex with other men while he filmed it, that he beat her really badly and kicked her and stomped her on numerous like occasions. She's now, she's come out with all of these allegations. Um, Combs's lawyer, Ben Braffman, who of course we've all heard of, the go-to celebrity lawyer, says that the allegations are offensive, they're outrageous, she made it all up, etc., etc. She's just an opportunist who's looking for a multi-million dollar payday. Um, her lawyer says that she already turned down an eight-figure sum from Combs to, to silence her, like an eight-figure sum to, to we, the, the, we, I don't. We don't know. Either way, we mm. there's no way of knowing that the, of the veracity of either of those um, claims. But I think that it, it seems that um, she has decided not to be silenced. That she wants to pursue this through legal channels. Um, I, you know, that it would go to court. That there would be presumably a jury. I don't know. Will there be criminal charges? She's certainly got a hell of a civil case. Um, and on, you know, in a civil case, of course, it's based on a preponderance of evidence. Um, I don't know what, if any evidence she has, any documentation. 
um, that, that would support her case if, if she confided in other people as well, for example. Um, you know, Combs's lawyers have made it clear he's going to fight this. Um, and so, as I said, we will see, will this wind its way through the court system or will there be some kind of a settlement or will there be criminal charges? Because it certainly seems on the face of it that there are grounds for criminal charges if if she has any evidence mm. at yeah, all to support it, her allegations. If there's one thing we learned through uh, the Me Too movement was exactly how tough it is to actually go down this path yeah. of taking on yeah. a more powerful man. Now, that doesn't automatically you know, provide a guilty or uh, we can't assume guilt, as you say, but it's it's just come out. It's in. We'll link it in the info for the episode and you can have a read for yourselves uh marion it's so great to have you back last week was so weird without you but i have to say uh i i, I hope you got a couple of extra hours sleep well, anyway. i hope you in, did in too between. i just feel so much fresher coming at it this week and just had a much better chance to absorb the news and prep for the episode uh, I guess it gives you guys a chance not to get swamped in episodes as well. And I really appreciate all the lovely messages that have streamed in uh, since our decision to go bimonthly. Um, what are you uh, enjoying? And, and the questions. I've got yeah, it. The questions. The, the, the questions that we get and the observations and just the, the level of nuance and detail. And, and it, they're so bloody impressive. Yeah, so, you guys yeah. are the best. There's no doubt about it. Uh, and you do like a good it. recommendation. So I will give you mine. I went to see the Roddy Doyle interpretation of Peter Pan uh, with our friend of the show, Claire Dunn, in the role of Hook. Oh, my God, Marion. Like, I was not expecting to have my mind blown out my ears Uh, i'm not a massive peter pan fan but this Mm -hmm. is the best interpretation of it you will ever see it is on in the gate get a ticket if you can they're bound to sell out but you need to witness this to understand what i'm talking about there's no point in me trying to explain how great it is you're gonna love it what are you enjoying what have you have you been out and about seeing things this that is a terrific recommendation and i don't know i i'll be back in dublin in a couple of weeks so i i don't know if it'll be still on when i get there but but if it is i will absolutely um you know take take your (laughs) your advice on that one uh let me see what we spoke about guns and roses didn't we i think since when i saw you last i just Checked out old Axel, and there he was giving a welly. Um, yeah, I've been to a couple of other things. I, let me think. This weekend, do you know what I'm probably going to do? Is I'll probably watch The Crown. Because <laughs> who can resist? Yeah. Who can resist a bit of you know the penultimate season six with all the drama coming crashing down around their heads? Uh, and, and so I I think that that will be it. But other than that, what um, I. I'm trying to think. I know I've seen a couple of movies. Sorry, I'm having a complete blank out well, that's here. That's okay. Take well. your time. Yeah. Um, I went to see the Taylor Swift, the the Eros movie, um, and uh, the Eros, and I, uh, yeah, you know, I really admire her as a businesswoman, as a role model. I like the way she runs her own show, the way she really is in charge. Um, mm-hmm. her music leaves me a little, a me little too. cold. Find <laughs> it a little bland, to be quite a little honest. Vanilla. But a little, yeah. (laughs) But speaking of now, I I was only told this today by by my my 
dear friend Victoria Clark in Dublin, uh, um, that her boyfriend, and I don't know if the, if the gang know this, but they might want to have a listen in, uh, her boyfriend, who is a big NFL star, um, what's his name, Travis oh, yeah. Kel- Kelsey, yeah. And he has a brother whose first name, Jason Kelsey, and he's a footballer as well with the Eagles. They have come together and they have done a version of Fairy Tale of New York. So this is this is Taylor's boyfriend and Taylor's boyfriend's brother. And they have converted the song to make it a song about two brothers, as opposed to, you know, a, a down on their look couple, yeah. you know. And do you know something? It works. Apparently it's number one in the Apple charts. They want it to be a Christmas number one. That's the goal. And apparently all Taylor's fans are going to try and give her a Christmas present of having her boyfriend as number one for Christmas with fairy tale, which is so surreal. When you think about the two NFL players. You know, doing a version of Fairy Tale of New York. It's kind of mental. It is mental. <laughs> That's for but, sure. But one of them, and I think it's Jason, hasn't got a bad voice. Now, nope. some of the lyrics, they change the lyrics uh, quite a bit. So it's, and there's also like they change it from the, the, you know, the NYPD choir to the Philly, whatever it is, choir. Oh, there's God, a couple I don't of know, Marion. I can't like believe you're can. recommending this because like, I would imagine your good friend Shane would be, uh, you well, know, Shane literally spitting out. What? Shane is very amused by it. No. <laughs> Shane has no problem with it. He has no problem with it. I can tell okay. you that. Oh, wow. Okay, right. Well, if it's got his blessing. You know what? John Bon Jovi did a version, was it a year or two ago? And it, people jumped all over him. And Shane really pretty well came to his defense very robustly. And kind of, you know, I think that it's fair to say about Shane, he's not precious. And, you know, he's never been really scathing about the various people who've covered it. And let's face it, there have been some there real, been a few. <laughs> there have been a few real, real slangers there. But this was to me just so bizarre. As I said, you cannot imagine a less likely, less likely cover than Taylor Swift's footballer <laughs> boyfriend and his brother you know, oh, well. doing a cover of fairy tale. So I just, it just, you know, it's sort of very, amusing and very kind of American in that way of that, you know, I'm sure anyone can do anything. Why the yeah, hell yeah. not? Everyone can you know? give everything a, sw- a swing. If George Santos exactly. can get elected, you can or have a George go. George Santos might do a cover next yeah. year. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> Marion, no. thank you. Thank you so, so much for this episode. It's always a pleasure. We'll be Absolutely. back in two weeks' time. Thank you and for supporting the show, uh, being a patron here. Uh, make sure to pop in your questions to Marion and we'll talk to you next time, Marion. Keep them coming. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. Ready? You have the cameras rolling? This is America. A lot of people who would probably consider themselves liberal have done very well financially under the Donald Trump four years. You encouraged espionage against our people. You condemn any interference by Russia in the American election. By Russia or anybody else. Russia, please, if you can, get us Hillary Clinton's emails. Please, Russia, please. To renew America, we must revitalize our democracy.